Well, good morning, CBC. Yeah, I'm uh, Mike, one of the pastors here. I want to welcome everybody that's here. I want to welcome those that are watching online. Start off with uh, a real quick disclaimer, if you can tell from the passage. Uh, today, Jesus is going to come after our hypocrisy and talk about our money. So if you're a guest, welcome. <laughs> we are excited that you've joined us today, and we hope you come back. No, that's good. Uh, no, I, uh, I'm very grateful that I grew up in uh, a church going home. I'm grateful for my parents who brought us to church. Part of the reason I say that is because around the age of 9 or 10, this passage from Matthew 6 that, that Bill read was uh, kind of bumbling around in my head when I was walking home from school one day about you know, doing good deeds, not letting people know what your left and right hand is doing. So as I'm walking home, I have this memory. Uh, I was on my street, and on the sidewalk, I looked down, and there was a letter there. So I bent down and, and picked it up just on the ground, and I noticed it was out in front of my friend's house, and it was addressed to them. It was probably some junk mail. It just fell out of the mailbox or something like that. But in this moment, I knew the good Christian thing to do would be to give them their letter back. However, I should do it in secret so that I don't try to get glory out of this. So I remember, like, okay, left hand, right hand, can't know what you're doing. So and I don't know how I looked, but I'm sure if anybody was driving by, I'm holding this letter in my left hand, can't let my right hand know what I'm doing. So I'm like, putting it like that, like trying to like go up there. And who knows how silly I looked trying to be faithful to this passage. Uh, but clearly, as a child, uh, I didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Uh, but I do have to ask myself, you know, nearly 30 years later, do I really understand it any better? And does my life look any less foolish than it did then? Uh, so if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been in a, a sermon series called Reorder, uh, which is uh, based on the most famous sermon ever preached by the most famous preacher to ever live, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he's flipping everything upside down and calling us to reorder our lives, every aspect of our lives around him. So if you remember, he starts the sermon with the Beatitudes, turning upside down what we think it means to be blessed. And then he challenges us as we live this new kingdom blessed life. He says, we're going to stand out like salt and light in this dark world. But that the standing out, he'll go on to say, is not about just conforming to some outward good behavior, but is about an inward transformation of the heart. And so then today, in chapter 6, Jesus is going to begin a section where he's going to continue to come after our hearts and call us to reorder, but in our worship of God through giving, prayer, and fasting. And if you, like me, have been like incredibly convicted during this whole sermon series and uh, felt the weight of your sin being exposed, good news, uh, today's might be the worst, okay? Uh, but that's a good thing. Uh, in fact, here's what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this section here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we may as well realize at the outset that this chapter 6 is, again, a very searching one. Indeed, we can go further and say that it is a very painful one. I sometimes think that it is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes, it examines, and holds a mirror up before us, and it will not allow us to escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. But thank God for it. I repeat, thank God for it. Because 
It is only the man who has truly seen himself for what he is who is likely to fly to Christ. What is Lloyd-Jones saying here? Well, that while it may be painful and how Jesus exposes our sinfulness, if it draws us to abandon ourselves and hold tightly to him, then this pain in us is indeed an act of loving grace of God to us. Because here in this chapter, Jesus is ultimately going to be asking us, who is your life pointing to? And he starts right here in this first verse. So if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Follow along with me as I read verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Right here in verse 1, we have Jesus' summary statement for this entire section. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. It is both a caution against living a life pointed to ourselves and a calling to live our lives pointing to something else much greater. Who is your life pointing to? So let's look together as Jesus shares in this section God's passion for the poor, God's glory in our giving, and God's grace as our giver. So pick it up with me again in verse 2. I'll put it on the screen as I read. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So first of all, who is Jesus talking to here? Well, he's addressing the religious in the crowd. Like in chapter 5, if you've been with us, when he said to them, you have heard it said, and then he quotes scripture, that the religious would have known. In this section, Jesus is referencing activities that they would have done, specifically giving, praying, and fasting. So why is that so important for us to remember this morning? Because I'm convinced if Jesus were giving this sermon today, who would he be addressing? Us. The church going faithful. The pew packers. The Bible knowers. The faithful givers and volunteers and small group leaders. Friends, Jesus is talking to us directly this morning. Just as he was talking to the religious crowd back then. Specifically, those of us that might be trusting that our churchiness is what makes God accept us. Jesus warns them and us that the very behavior we think might get us in with God is actually the very thing keeping us out. A caution for them and a caution for us, as we'll see. Another way we know that he's addressing the religious is because you'll notice he says in verse 2, when you give to the needy. Not if you give to the needy, but when. Jesus assumes that those who consider themselves faithful followers of God would be active in caring for the needy. And to be honest, that was the right expectation for Jesus to have. 
Because it makes sense that those who claim to know God would share in the heart of God. And what is that heart? That God has a passion for the poor. We can see that passion all the way back in Exodus. As God brought his people out of, the, out of slavery in Egypt, he was establishing them as his people, a nation bearing his holiness and standing them in contrast to the evil nations of the world. And in establishing them, God tells them this. He says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy, and to the poor in your land. A passion for the poor marks God, and so it would mark his people. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, God's commands to care for the needy, even seeing his righteous judgment against foreign nations who forsake and abuse the poor, but not just foreign nations, even judgment upon his own people when they do the same. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. God has a passion for the poor, so much so that he sees how we treat the poor as a reflection of how we treat him. To turn away from the afflicted is to profane the holy name of God. And in the New Testament, continue, Jesus would show God's passion for the poor and how he preached, healed, and provided for them. Here in Matthew 6, in our passage today, Jesus expects his people to care for the poor. And in passages like Luke 14, Jesus calls us to show preference to the poor when we throw parties, inviting them to join us even over our family and friends. And we can continue to see God's passion throughout Scripture, such as Acts 2 and 4, when the New Testament church gathered together and by the power of the Spirit sold everything they had, all of their possessions, giving generously to the needy within the church and the community. And even the first century church was marked by this extravagant generosity and care. So much so that historians would even look back and say, quoted at the time, it, would, it was said of Christians, Romans cared for Rome's poor. Greeks cared for Greece's poor, but Christians cared for everyone's poor. Why is this important? Because I believe if our lives are meant to point to God, then our lives are going to reflect the passions of God. And one of those passions is a radical, generous care for the poor, shown in not just that we give, but in how we give. Jesus will continue here in Matthew 6 to show us we will either give as a hypocrite or for our own glory or as the humble for God's glory in our giving. So let's, again, dive in. Verse 2. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, 
as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and that's, uh, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus shares with the crowd two ways of approaching giving. And in describing the first way, Jesus uses a word that God uses throughout scripture, the word hypocrite. And when God uses this word, it's often surrounded by his harshest criticism and his greatest judgment for those who practice hypocrisy. So here's our caution, both from me and if you remember from Lloyd-Jones earlier, if we're humble and honest, this section will sting us a little bit. But like the sting of antiseptic, healing will follow. So stay with me. I've had more people walk out on a sermon when I talk about giving than anything else. So I'm saying, stick with me. <laughs> Wait to the end because the healing will come. But first, let's see what Jesus is saying about the giving in the heart of the hypocrite. So the word hypocrite, if you're not uh, familiar with it, um, that Greek word literally comes from uh, like the Greek world of theater and drama. Like a hypocrite is a, a mask wearer, someone acting a part in a costume. It's someone portraying something uh, externally that they aren't really internally. So Jesus is going to say here that a hypocrite acting on stage is entertaining, but a hypocrite acting their way through life is damning. Especially those that act as a hypocrite in how they worship God. Pretending to live a life pointing to him, but in reality pointing to themselves. And Jesus talks specifically here how a hypocrite gives. So let's note together really quick the four things that we can see Jesus saying here about how the hypocrite gives. Well, the first thing to note is they do give. They do give. They are participating in the life and ministry of the religious group. They give, but as we will see who are they really giving to? It's not to God. It's really not to the needy. They are giving to themselves, giving to get glory for themselves, to show how great they are, how faithful or how holy they are. And not just how holy they are, but how much holier they are. Holier than them. Those who don't give as much or those who aren't as successful. Those who aren't able to give because of their more poor, foolish life choices. Hypocrites give to get a glory they don't deserve from a life pointing to self. It's what Jesus would say of the Pharisees and scribes often. Even when he quotes the prophet Isaiah to them, when Jesus says to them this, he says, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. The reality is, hypocrites do give, but not to worship or to partner with God in his passion for the poor, but for themselves and their glory. So at this point, 
especially as I'm preparing the sermon, I'm start, it's starting to sting a little bit. <laughs> and I ask myself, and in my worship, in my giving, who is my life pointing to? Whose glory am I truly after, mine or God's? Another way of thinking about it is, who is really the hero of my story? So that brings us to the second thing to note about how a hypocrite gives. Their giving is, for, is purposely for public praise. They give for the eyes of others. Jesus says that the hypocrites give in the synagogues, in the streets, sounding the trumpets in front of everyone so that they may be praised by others. To get glory, they need an audience. So they promote and proclaim their good works in order to get the desired affirmation they crave. Now, I've been looking around. Most of you, I think, have left your trumpets at home, right? I don't see them here. Uh, if you have a trumpet, get a hold of Kyle. He could use you in the band. Um, no, I, I think we didn't really bring our trumpets to give today. But, you know, the question I ask myself is, but do I still have ways of, like, publicizing my righteousness? Well, of course. Posting or giving or acts of kindness or, like, spiritual depth and insight on social media to get the reaction and likes and praise from others. Or intentionally referencing our giving or our sacrifices or our good deeds and conversations with one another in the foyer. Or it just can be simply any time I interject myself or what I do as the hero of my life story when I'm talking with people. Whatever ways, a hundred thousand million different trumpets that I can sound, trying to point attention back to myself. Do we have trumpets? For sure. And they're all designed to pull the attention to ourselves. And Jesus tells us that not only will a hypocrite give for their own glory, not only do they give for the eyes of others, that thirdly, they give in such a way, and I don't like this one because it hits too home with me, they use God as a tool. So I use, well, what is a tool, first of all? It's an object, right? It's just an object I wield. This is a tool. It's a clicker for changing slides, a hammer to hammer in a nail. Even a car can be a tool to get you from point A to point B. A tool is something, it's an object. There's no love, no relationship, no heart. As grateful as I am for you, Clicker, I have no affection for you whatsoever. There's no relationship. It's just an object used for a purpose. It simply serves my purpose to accomplish my results. And the hypocrite, at times my hypocritical heart, looks at almighty God as an object and a tool to be used for my purposes accomplishing my results, my attention-seeking, my self-glorifying, just like the hypocrites. And we see it all the time, not just in my life, but I see it when people use the church or Jesus or God or Christianity as a tool, whether it's a pastor or a politician or celebrity, whoever it is, they use that as a tool to further their own agenda and get their own glory. We use God like a tool all the times. And how many times do I have a heart of a hypocrite and do the same thing? Saying in my heart, I'll do this, I'll do that thing, I'll serve, I'll give, I'll attend, I'll do whatever, as long as I get what I want in the end. The hypocrite gives using God as a tool and a life pointing to themselves. And lastly, as Jesus exposes here, we see when he talks about a hypocrite gives, he gets a hypocrite's reward. The reward of the fleeting 
praise of people evaporating like steam. The reward maybe of, a, of an ego boost or maybe the short-term relief of religious guilt. Like if I can just give, I'll, just, I'll feel better about all the bad things that I do. Whatever the desired reward for self-centered giving is, the reward, Jesus says, is always small, short-lived, and unsatisfying. And what they get when they, when they give hypocritically pales in comparison to what they lose. The richness and joys and reward of God that comes from giving with a humble heart. I resonate too much with the hypocrite who lives a life pointed to self, shown in giving for my own glory, giving for the eyes of others, using God as a tool for a fleeting reward. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. This is the sting before the healing. If this is what, the way that a hypocrite gives, and unfortunately I see myself too much on that slide, Jesus is going to encourage us and lead us and challenge us to say there's another way to give, not as the hypocrite, but as the humble. So let's look at how the humble gives. Because in comparison, Jesus is going to show us. So just like the hypocrite, the humble gives. But unlike the hypocrite, it's not for their own glory, but for God's. He's the hero. And how do they show this? How do they show God is the hero? Well, firstly, by not giving before a public audience, but giving, as Jesus says, in secret. It's an act of faith before an audience of God alone for God's eyes alone. And Jesus paints this like really incredible picture here. This contrast between the pomp and circumstance and trumpeting of the Pharisees and, and hypocrites and their giving in contrast to that with the, this worshiper's quiet, secret, God's eyes alone type of faithful giving. Did you check this out? It's so God-obsessed and so self-forgetful that even the worshiper's left hand and right hand aren't paying attention to each other because all focus is on God alone, his greatness, his glory. Giving for glory of God alone, for God's eyes alone. Because while the hypocrite views God as a tool to be used, Jesus says the humble give with God as a father to be loved. And our perfect heavenly father is lovely, is praiseworthy. He is our holy, all-powerful, and all-inducing, almighty God, but he is also our caring, providing, near, loving, and gracious father. And that's who the humble is ultimately giving to, a loving, worthy father. And this father we have is also rewarding. And I'll be honest, I don't exactly know what that means. <laughs> I don't exactly know what these like heavenly, eternal, God the father-sized rewards are. But here's what I can tell you and tell myself. You can't buy it. 
You can't earn it. No person or crowd can give it to you. You can't lose it. And no one can ever take it away from you. Because a humble give for God's glory, for God's eyes to a worthy father who is a gracious rewarder. It's giving from a life pointing to him. But again, what does that life really look like? Like tangibly, can we see expressions of that life pointing to God and and how they view money? And again, Jesus gives us some examples in scripture from some interactions he had to compare. So uh, we'll go to one that maybe some of you are familiar with. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? So the rich young ruler is a man that comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. And if you know the story, he came and said, you know, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In essence, be saved, be worthy, be good, be accepted. Jesus says, keep all the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, done. I've done those since I was a kid. And Jesus says, one more thing. And this is what scripture tells us. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He went away because deep down, and Jesus knew this, that the treasure of his heart was the short-lived, fleeting, false promises that a self-centered view of money offered, rather than the truth of the eternal, soul-satisfying riches and treasures we were made for of knowing and following our King Jesus. The rich young ruler had a, a view of life, a view of money that was pointing to himself. Well, let's get some encouragement. <laughs> you might also be familiar with another story, also in Mark, a little bit later. The story of the widow's gift. And it's just a few verses, so I'll read it. Mark 12. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came up and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. See, the rich young ruler in treasuring his money above left Jesus, but the widow in treasuring God above left her moneyed. We see even here, God is not after the amount of the gift, but the amount of our hearts. And so again, I read these stories and I'm feeling convicted and challenged about my own hypocritical heart. And I'm asking the questions to myself as I look at these two stories, who in these stories was truly the richest? Who of these two was captivated 
by a genuine, lasting treasure that would satisfy them for all eternity. Who was living a life pointing to God? And we don't have time to talk about Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector who, after meeting with Jesus, gave up his uh, fortune to serve the poor, or the church in Acts 4, who had no needy among them because of their generosity of giving, or the countless stories throughout Scripture where lives were turned upside down, reordered, completely transformed, all to point to Jesus alone. And friends, again, you probably can tell, I'm not there yet. I'm not where I want to be and how much I trust Jesus and follow him in faithfulness, how much I give, how generous I am in caring for the poor, but I want to press into him more pushing forward in faith, asking God to transform me more. I genuinely want that, and I want to encourage us to do the same. And I also want to encourage you, even in the midst of hard economic times, worries around inflation, and, and from our eyes, what can look like financial uncertainties, God is in control, God is providing, God understands the anxieties of our heart, he is not unaware of our worries and our needs. But hear this. I believe God is looking at us and asking us to look at him, to trust him, to seek him and follow him, that it's not about, again, the amount of our giving, but the amount of our faith. It's not about God getting our gifts, but getting our hearts and giving us the desire that our lives would not be hypocritical, but would be humble, and would do nothing but point to the reality of his greatness. But how? How does someone have faith like the widow? How does someone have a life transformed like Zacchaeus? How do we look like the church in Acts, so full of the Spirit, so in awe of God and overwhelmed by his grace that it transforms everything about us, including our generosity? Well, it takes a heart change. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It takes a change of heart in us deep within. And as that heart change happens, it reorders the treasures of our heart. We see the widow treasured the Lord more than anything. Zacchaeus treasured Jesus over his wealth and position. The early church treasured God over their things, their comforts, even their own lives, because our lives, hear this, will always point to whatever we treasure most. Our lives will always point to whatever we treasure most. So how do we change our hearts to treasure Jesus the most? We don't. We can't. Only God changes hearts. For us to be transformed, it takes something beyond ourselves. It takes the miraculous, powerful, supernatural work of God in us to change us. It's not a human-sized work. It's a God-sized work. But here's the good news. It's the work he loves doing. He loves transforming people like me from the hypocrite to become more like the humble. But as God is doing this transforming work in us, I do believe that part of that work is him drawing us into his process as we do two things. We ask and we remember. We ask and we remember. We ask, we pray, 
that God would change us? What does your prayer life look like? When you plead and come to God, what are you asking for? And God wants us to ask him for things, and uh, he wants us to come to him. But I challenge even in myself, what if the number one prayer in my life would be that the power of his spirit would transform my heart, transform my treasure, transform even my generosity so that my very life would point to him above all things, to ask, to pray. I think part of God is changing us through changing what we ask him for in our lives, that our lives would have more of Jesus and less of us. So we pray, we ask, but we also remember. What do we remember? Well, the truth about God's grace as our giver. So what is it that we have actually been given by God? Everything. (laughs) You and I don't have anything that we first weren't given by God. We don't have anything that we first didn't receive by his grace. So by way of reminder, let's do a recap of what God has given us. Let's start off firstly with life. How many of you guys chose to exist? Right. Our very existence wasn't earned by us, but a gift to us that we actually don't have any claim to. It was given to us by the gracious hand of our creator. And more than that, everything about us is a gift. Our bodies, our arms and legs, our muscles, our brain, our heart, everything. Our minds, our intellect, our reasoning, our ability to think and learn. We didn't make that. We didn't create that. We were given it. What about your talents and your skills? Our athleticism or creativity or ability to communicate or any gift we were born with in this life. Do you realize that's why they're called gifts? Because they were given to us. We didn't earn them. We didn't make them. But even more than that, let's go a little bit deeper. You know, if you believe the truth that God is sovereign over everything, every moment, well, that means every opportunity that's ever been before us, every achievement we've ever done, any job, any relationship only came our way because the sovereign Lord of our lives, our Father, allowed them to. Every dollar we've ever earned wasn't achieved by us, but given to us by God. Every single thing in our lives was given to us by a generous Father with a heart and love for the poor, i.e. us. Friends, let's go ahead and go all the way. The only thing you and I bring to God is sin. The only thing we've ever earned in ourselves is guilt. Everything else is a gracious gift from God that none of us deserve the grace of our giver. Let's keep going. Because if you're a Christian, if in this room you've given your life, you've surrendered and given your life to Jesus in faith, God has only just begun giving to you generously and graciously. So let's go. We know this, that God gave you, if you're a Christian here, his most precious gift, his greatest treasure, his very son. Literally gave Jesus 
in the flesh to us, on this earth, here with us, given to us personally. And then even more so, Jesus given up for us on the cross in our place. His sinless life given to us, our sinful guilt given to him on the cross. We've been given forgiveness and new life through his resurrection and victory over sin and death. Our entire salvation is a gift. And in that gift of salvation, incalculable gifts with it. God gave you forgiveness. God gave you mercy. God gave you a new heart, a new name, a new family, a new adoption, a new hope, and a new future. God gave you the gift of his spirit in you. God gave you new spiritual gifts. He gave you a new power over sin, and we could go on. But God's not done giving because God is preparing to give you a new glory, giving you a redeemed body, freed from sin, fully alive, and never to die again. God tells us he's giving us all of the new glorious creation that's coming. We are co-heirs with Christ to a new, wondrous, redeemed, restored universe, greater and more beautiful than we could ever imagine that is not worth comparing to any cheap trinkets of this broken and fleeting world. And the greatest gift God gives us out of his lavish and abundant love, himself. We will be with God in his presence, fully satisfied, Never a need or a hunger or want with undimmed joy and beauty forevermore. God's grace as our giver. And all of this is ours because of this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The king and glory of heaven became a man, not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, a servant, but unto death on the cross, emptied himself to rescue us and reward us and give us riches. If we believe that and we're not the most generous people on the planet, Jesus has a word for that. It has to do with Greek drama and theater. So with all this, with all that we've been given by the grace of our giver, we never give from what we didn't first receive by God. That's how we can be so generous. That's how we can give with a passion for the poor. That's how our lives can be pointing to Jesus because we have traded treasures. Trading the treasures of this world with the treasures of heaven, King Jesus at the top of our lives and every inch of our lives pointing to that. And I'm not there yet, but I'm, I want to go there. I want you to go there with me. Like, let's do it. So again, in that, I'll, I'll ask myself and ask us as we want to be people who are moving away from being the hypocrites and more into being the humble, we ask ourselves, who is your life pointing to? Who is your giving pointing to? Who is my life, my giving pointing to? So in the conclusion of the sermon, um, we want to do something that we normally don't do, uh, but I want to give us a couple specific places to take steps of faithful application. So firstly, as a church at CBC, we desire to walk in the faithfulness of our mission statement, being fully devoted followers of Christ who love God, and love others, and 
we want to be faithful to follow Jesus' command that we're studying here, to be lights in our world and drawing praise up to God our Father by how we live in our community and care for those in need. So if you've been with us, you'll know a few weeks ago, our amazing youth group, Powerhouse, did just that through helping partner with an organization called Generosity Feeds. And if you remember, they came in, uh, like a third of kids in Fairfax have uh, uh, food insecurity. They don't have enough to eat in our community here. So what we did a few weeks ago is we built uh, 3,000 boxes of food. Some of you guys donated, some of you guys served, and we were able to give 3,000 meals to our community. But as we look at that example, as we look at God's word, as we look at who we're supposed to be, I think we're not satisfied with just doing that. As a church, we want to do more. We want to impact our community for the sake of Christ even more. So here's what we're going to do, not just as a youth group, but all together. We're going to ask God to move in our church body, and we're going to tr try to provide 10,000 meals. So we're going to raise now between the end of the year, we're asking God to provide on top of our normal giving from our church body $10,000. It's a dollar per meal that will provide food for uh, kids in our community, and we can shine a light of Jesus. So if you want to give, there's two things you can do. You can give financially, you can give with elbow grease, or both. Uh, one is you ask, okay, how can I give? Well, there's a couple ways you can give. One, you can write a check to Chantilly Bible Church and put generosity feeds in the memo line, so we know that that's specially for that. Or if you go online, um, Kyle tells me that's a QR code. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm so out of shape. Or out of shape. I am out of shape, but out of touch. Yeah. I'm out of everything. I'm out of I'm out of energy. <laughs> No, but we have two ways here you can give online. So if you scan that QR code, it's going to take you to our giving page, which is chantillybible.org slash give. And there, you can, if you don't want to write a check, you can give there. But make sure you pull down on that drop-down generosity feed. So it doesn't go into our general fund, but it goes into generosity feed. So as people who are looking to want to be the humble givers from a transformed heart that give to the needy, this is one practical way we can do that. So I pray you would join me with that in giving. And then mark your calendars, church everybody, on January 21st, we're going to come together as a church and actually make the food boxes. We're going to do that together. So give and come help. So that's the first thing. So the last thing we want to go do for an application step is, is simply this. Friends, I'm convinced that the best way for us as a church to be faithfully and impactfully serving the needy in our community and beyond is for us to be a healthy, mature, spiritually growing, disciple-making church. The healthier our church is, the more we're going to have an impact for the, church, uh, for the community around us. And our giving to the church is directly tied to that. So we don't really talk uh, a lot about giving. Maybe we should talk more, to be honest. And maybe you've had a bad experience with giving or, or churches asking for, you know, uh, support and donations. And I don't, I don't know what your history is, but friends, Jesus talks an awful lot about giving and about money. You know why? Because just like the rich young ruler, he loves us. And he knows how easy it is for our hearts to be divided between following him and following this world and how money plays a part in that. So my encouragement to you today, as Jesus is teaching us in his word, is to do two things with the Lord right now. Ask and remember. Ask. Pray right now, you and the Spirit of God, asking the Spirit, say, Jesus, I want to have those eternal goggles. I want to have those God's kingdom goggles as I look at my life. Give me a heart 
that treasures Jesus above the foolish, fleeting, passing trinkets of this world. So we ask, we pray, we ask. And I'm going to ask you to do the second thing. Remember, remember the riches that you have in this moment right now because of your gracious, loving, generous Father. That he's not only loving you and taking care of you and providing for you in this moment right now, but because of what Christ has done on the cross and the resurrection, your security and your joy and your hope and your provision is assured now and forevermore. And there's a treasure and a glory and a wonder and a beauty coming because of what Jesus has done for you that cannot compare to the distractions and temptations that this world tries to get us with. So ask and remember who you are who Jesus is, the story that you're in, and the future that's coming. And I'm going to ask that you join me, and as a church, we pray and ask God to give us the heart of the humble and how we give. Because friends, praise God for his unending grace and his unsearchable riches that he's lavished on us in Christ, and with our eyes fixed on Jesus. With transformed hearts of the humble, let us together answer this question. Who is your life pointing to? With a resounding, unending, passionate Jesus, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, in this moment right now, before anything else, remind us of your generosity to us, that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up to us, that you have a glory for us now and one that's coming that is deeper and more beautiful and richer than we could ever dream. And God, that you would transform our hearts and lives to be so in awe, so enamored with who you are, that our lives, our giving, our worship, every square inch of us would be pointing to you and not ourselves. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.